Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, Maggie. Happy Thanksgiving Eve. Yeah, exactly. We're almost there. I feel I kind of feel like we should have like an appetizer and a drink sitting here, but we'll get there soon. Um, you know, it's interesting. The equity market actually was a little bit muted in the U.S. ahead of that Thanksgiving holiday. Not really a surprise there, but we did see bonds and the dollar reacting to a batch of economic data, a data dump, I think is what we're all calling it, right? Because there were a lot out. <laughs> and some of them really making headlines. Weekly jobless claims, the lowest since 1969. 50 years. And the PCE, another one that jumped out at a lot of people, the prices for per- personal consumption expenditures, uh, that's a mouthful, uh, excluding food and energy increased 4.1%, the highest since 1991, you know, put food in and of course, even higher than that. What did you make of, of this number, of these numbers? Yeah, I'd say the biggest, the sort of two key takeaways from the PCE data um, that I thought was really interesting is one, you had a tail to goods demand. Um, we're sort of getting into the part of the process where a lot of that uh, overstimulated goods demand from uh, from the earlier part of the pandemic was likely started to wane. But what we're seeing now is a clear pull forward of goods demand from the normal holiday season, November, December, clearly into October. And so we saw that accelerate uh, to 12.6% on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis, real goods PC. Uh, that's the highest number we've seen in a couple of months. The flip side of that, and more important as, as it relates to the sort of medium term outlook, is the fact that you're now starting to see uh, disposable personal income really start to suffer. Um, so on the, on the SAR basis, it actually contracted in October at minus 3.3%. That's the lowest number we've seen since June of this year. But I would argue that it's more relevant to look at uh, real disposable personal income ex-government transfer receipts. Uh, because again, when you look at our year-over-year basis, we obviously got a tremendous amount of government stimulus payments through, you know, let's call it July of, of this year, starting since the beginning of the pandemic. And that number slowed to 1.4%. On a year-over-year basis, that's the lowest number we've seen in eight months. But the real, the, the key takeaway is that you have consensus expectations for growth, you know, for 2022, somewhere in the three and a half to four percent range on a full calendar year basis. And clearly, 1.4 percent of disposable personal income growth on a real basis is not going to cut it. That that's that's so yeah that that's not. And it's interesting. Uh, by the way, the the PCE and and this this batch of data. Um, Combine it with the weekly jobless claims, really the PC is something we know the Fed watches closely. I would say weekly jobless claims, they're noisy. They move around a lot. So you want to take the trend out of that. But wage inflation is that sticking inflation that we know the Fed's going to worry about and full employment, one of their targets. And the thing that has been standing in the way from them moving more aggressively. But if you if you look at that and you say that growth targets can be hard to achieve, Walk me through what that's going to mean for the Fed then, because, you know, you look at the other side and those inflation numbers seem like they're running hot and everyone is talking about we had the Fed minutes come out today talking about the fact that, you know, you're starting to hear a change. They're also backward looking, by the way. But, you know, some Fed officials are starting to talk about speeding up that taper, uh, getting out in front of inflation. Everyone in D.C. with a microphone is talking about inflation. 
That seems like two different things then. If growth is going to slow, fit this into your modeling for us. Yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're starting to talk about the accelerated tapering likely because we told them to a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, look, you know, this is um, you know, not to plug, uh, the plug in the Real Vision video for myself and uh, my man, Tony Greer, that came out today. This is something we actually discussed in the video, which we said, hey, look, when the Fed sits down at its December meeting, uh, December 15th, they're going to have a 4% uh, core PC print. And obviously, we, we had that discussion prior to today's data. We said they're going to have a 4% core PC print. That's their preferred inflation metric on hand. It very likely means we're going to see an acceleration in the tapering process. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see a necessary pull forward in demand, or pull forward, rather, in the, in the timing of interest rate hikes, although I do believe that is likely to be pulled forward. Because again, when you're talking about where core PC will be at the June meeting, that meeting is June 15th, uh, we're still going to have it. Our model suggests core PC is likely to be around 3.5% of the time. We do think that will be enough to necessitate liftoff to the extent the financial markets aren't melting down at that particular time. They very well could be. Um, and then lastly, but you know, in terms of the medium-term outlook with respect to consumer demand and the, the, hmm. the ability or lack thereof, because I think there's still a real healthy debate about this, the ability or lack thereof of the fiscal stimulus-induced economy, particularly the goods economy, to pass the baton to a non-fiscally stimulated services economy. That's the only way we're going to hit, you know, three and a half, four percent real GDP expectations for next year. And if we don't see that that handoff sort of be very clean, if that handoff is botched, imagine a, you know, a relay race. If that handoff gets botched, we're talking about a pretty material ratcheting down of growth expectations. And so, you know, when you think about the second half of next year, it's extremely dovish from the perspective of the real curve and bonds in general. But this next two to three months or so is still very much near the peak of the inflation cycle, enough close enough to the peak of the inflation cycle that should see uh, catalyze and accelerated tapering out of the FOMC. Yeah, it's hard for it, it. Once the expectations start running that far ahead of where the Fed is, it, it sort of puts them in a jam. Are we looking at uh, persistently higher, maybe not increasing in its rate, but uh, high prices, high inflation, and slowing growth. That's not a scenario anybody wants to see. Yeah, no, totally. So in terms of the level of inflation, we've done a, as much work as anybody on this, in our opinion. Um, you know, so there's, there's what we found is there's 16 factors that have really influenced inflation on a secular basis. And so we put them all in our secular inflation model. And the model spits out, it suggests that, hey, on a go-for basis, this, this, this decade that we're currently in, Relative to the prior decade, where headline CPI averaged 1.8%, the headline CPI, the stationary mean of CPI in this, in this decade that we're currently in, should be anywhere between 50 to 90 basis points higher. So anywhere between 2.3% or to 2.7%. Uh, I happen to think it's going to be closer to the upper boundary of that range, specifically because one thing we didn't factor in, I think most people have found it very difficult to factor into any model, which is ESG, which is clearly a very mm -hmm. inflationary um, 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 factor upon the global economy. So um, to answer your question, yes, inflation is going to remain persistently high over the next decade relative to the decade that we just exited, relative to the regime that we just exited. But that, that's not necessarily a new regime of inflation. It just means inflation is going to be much higher. And with the real key takeaway, as it relates to your portfolios out there, for all you viewers watching, it's not about the level of inflation. The level of inflation will tell you what the Fed's likely to do at various intervals, which is why we're analyzing where core PC and wage inflation are likely to be at each of these Fed meetings over the next six to nine months. But the, the rate of change of inflation will tell you where bond yields are headed, sector and style factor leadership within the equity market, where currencies are headed. Those types of things are really uh, key on the, the rate of change. So, so do you see bond yields moving back lower 
when we're looking at out to next year, is it a is that the time frame that we're looking at? Because right now we we've seen a different dynamic in the near term, as we've seen about you know seen all these uh, forecasts really changing and pulling pulling up uh, the idea of more interest rate increases next year. Yeah, so absolutely. So yes, we do believe bond yields are likely to trend lower, particularly on the long end of the curve. I think the be- the short end of the belly of the curve are very much still reacting to very near term hawkish inflation dynamics and a potential acceleration in in, in the sort of uh, unwind of, of, of quantitative easing, unwind of monetary stimulus. So that stuff should continue to happen. But I think the long end of the curve and the shape of the yield curve, which has been compressing since the early part of this year, by the way, on the yield curve mm-hmm. nails it every time. The, the, the shape of the curve is looking out into next year and into 2023 and saying, hey, growth and inflation are going to be a lot lower, potentially on the growth side, a lot lower than consensus currently expects. Um, so I'm not making that call yet. I think there's any, enough data to make that call, but certainly the balance of risk relative to where growth expectations are is very much skewed to the downside. So um, that that's sort of our view on bond yields. And, and you know, with respect to right now, one of the things that sort of catalyzed a hawkish response in the fixed income markets over the last few days and trading days, if you will, um, is the fact that a lot of this data is showing acceleration in growth. And that acceleration mm-hmm. in growth, again, is, in our models, it suggests it's very likely to be contained in Q4. This is something we called out going all the way back to August. We said, hey, growth's going to bounce in Q4. I think everyone sort of understands that now. We're certainly seeing that at the tape in data terms. But the reality is you're unlikely to continue to see the, the, the backup in the euro dollar spreads, particularly for 2023, because I would argue that's the real driving factor of why bond yields have increased in the last few trading days and whatnot. That 2023 calendar spread is the, is the, is the reason because investors say, OK, growth's fine. That means the tail on growth is longer. Once the growth is fine dynamic changes, in our opinion, which is the Q1 event, then you'll start to see 2023 uh, interest rate expectations start to sag. You expectate the total number of rate hikes that are priced into 2022 start to sag. And this is, this is how you get bond yields much lower. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, super interesting. I, we have such good questions coming in. I want to get to a few of them because it's this, they all sort of are rotating around what we're talking about right now. And the first one is it's a little long, but it touches on a lot of I think some of the sort of the you know people scratching their heads looking at some of the moves in the market. Um, Goncalo on the exchange says in the past when tapering was announced, it usually led to lower yields, but this time we're seeing yields rising. Is it different? Different this time? Does it have to do in? do with inflation. And we you just answered that a bit, I think. And we have the U.S. dollar rising. That usually means slower economic growth. At the same time, energy is up. Also, hyper growth stocks being sold at the same time gold is going down. Like, What's the market trying to tell us here? Gold usually up when the economy slows. So there, there, there are some cross currents to work through, aren't there? There's always been. And this is one of the reasons. Those cross currents, exactly as they've been described, and to, I would argue even broader than they've been described, is exactly what we positioned for going back to our, the pivots we made in late September. We said, hey, they, you know, we run this sort of, we run this framework at 42 Macro, called the grid regime framework, Brody locks, reflation, inflation, deflation. They're, they're uh, effectively trying to segment the economy into rate of change baskets 
that have very different and disparate implications on asset market performance across cycles. And so that's why we think about the world in that manner. And we said, hey, look, we're actually not going to be really in any one of them, um, you know, kind of in Q4. The dots are really clustering near the origin in terms of the, the map that we that our forecasts are generating. And it suggests mm-hmm. that you're going to see a lot of weirdness in financial markets. You're not going to see sector and style factor leadership really kind of, you know, kind of uh, shine the light on any one of those four regimes. And this is exactly, I think, what the question is alluding to, which is it's not this crystal clear, you know, easy to trade market. And that's always been the case because the range of probable outcomes, the distribution of probable economic outcomes for the fourth quarter of 2021 and really the early part of Q1 of, of, of next year was always going to be a very flat distribution with respect to that process. So therefore, you're likely to see a very mixed, uh, a lot of mixed signals from asset markets as a function of that. Yeah, and some of some of the more traditional, perhaps relationships that people are used to seeing, uh, are are not necessarily. It's it's harder in that kind of environment, um, and and they're not necessarily keying off each other in the same way. We have a question. We saw the dollar, by the way, hit a sixteen month high against the euro. The dollar has been strong. Uh, question from Christopher, and I love this question for the Gridzilla. Gridzilla. Uh, with D- <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to sort of put that on your banner with DXY looking like crypto lately, do we need to see dollar weakness in order for risk assets to leg higher? Yes and no. Um, I do believe that the dollar strength, and, and certainly our models have back-tested and have shown this, the dollar strength is a is a real concern for the physical commodity space. That doesn't mean it can't work, physical commodities can't work, but it does mean those types of assets will experience higher volatility, even if they're continuing higher. And so, obviously, it's going to limit position sizing across the buy side and things of that nature. It's certainly done that in the crypto space as well. So we don't want to be, um, you know, we don't want to be remiss about ignoring that that risk as well. Um, what you really have to be concerned about in a dollar spike is when it really starts to appreciate against, you know, G10 FX, uh, but it actually stops appreciating it against things like the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. When the, when the Japanese yen, when the dollar is going up, but the Swiss franc and the Japanese yen are also going up relative to the dollar, that's a, as clear as a risk-off signal as you're going to get in the global currency market. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're not quite at that point of the process yet. So what we're really seeing is dollar strength being driven by a divergent policy rate expectations that for now are a function of accelerating growth. It could very well become a function of decelerating growth in the early event part of next year. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Is this? I mean, I wonder. We're we're the headlines. Uh, we see them coming all out through Europe about rising cases, about considering, uh, you know, mandatory vaccinations. I mean, there's a bit. There's been an awful lot of headlines. Um, how much of this is related to expectations around European growth and/or divergence from the ECB and the Fed? If Fed officials are sounding a bit more hawkish right now. Yeah, that's that's precisely what it is, in our opinion. It's it's the growth dynamic. So. Currency markets, and and so I think the, you know, I think the more the world has really learned in the last kind of decade or so that currency markets are fluctuate based on a lot of different disparate dynamics. You know, I think the old school thought was just you know interest rate spreads and real interest rate spreads and divergent policy rate expectations, but capital flows matter a big deal. And one of the things that's driven the dollar higher in 2021 is the fact that we've seen so much U.S. exceptionalism. There's been a very clear outperformance in the U.S. economy. And in U.S. asset markets, relative to those developed market peers, re- certainly relative to emerging markets, which have been a, a dog relative to, uh, to, to 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 the U.S. in that regard, and so those capital flows do continue; they they continue to persist. And as long as they persist, you're going to continue to have buoyant equity markets, you know, things of that nature in the U.S. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every stock, every sector, every style factor 
and continue higher. I do believe we're yeah. kind of early in the process where breadth is starting to narrow. Some some just fantastic questions coming through from the audience. I mean, everyone's just like really plugged in and on point today. Uh, would it be fair to view, this is from Greg, would it be fair to view the underperformance of small caps as a warning sign or is it a temporary drop due to ex options expirations? Uh, it could, could be both. I mean, I don't think you have to, to uh, you, you don't have to make that distinction. The fact that it happened, it, it happened. So it is a warning sign, whether or not it was catalyzed by OPEX or, or something else doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, what really matters is if, you know, one thing we track at, at the 42 macro is sort of, you know, there's three big intra-market relationships that we monitor through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signaling process. Um, that tends to front run big changes in price momentum that everyone reacts to as, 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 as a secondary consideration. And so the reality is high beta, low beta ratio that broke out in August and really led the kind of return of the mini reflation trade we called for back in September. That is now no longer bullish. It's back to neutral. Mm -hmm. um, part of the reason it's back to neutral is you, you're seeing credit spreads break out. Um, secondarily, small cap, uh, mega cap ratio, that's been neutral. It never really got bullish in this mini reflation trade that we've seen in Q4. And then the value to growth ratio is making new lows. And so when you start to look at the market internals from the perspective of style factor leadership, because style factor leadership is much more consistent across cycles with respect to our grit regime process, with respect to any regime segmentation process, I built some pretty powerful ones throughout my career. That stuff leads and is sticky. And as mm -hmm. long as those things are moving in the wrong direction, it is telling you that it, it's, it's, a, it's a warning sign. Now, we're not quite there yet in terms of all those things being bearish, but we certainly watch them every morning and we'll make that call. We have to. Yeah, um, we've got I, I, we've got uh, some some more dollar questions and some more uh, crypto questions, which I want to get to. But I also want to talk a little bit about mega cap because if we're in this kind of you know period where things are shifting around, and that has really been leading, because we ha we haven't really been talking about equities right now. Before we get to that, though, um, I want to share a bit from a really fascinating interview that Raul did with Scott Galloway. I don't know if our viewers are familiar with him. He's a professor of market at NYU uh, Stern School of Business. Um, he, he's out and about a lot, really thinking about technology trends. Uh, they covered a really wide range of topics, including the metaverse. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. I think the metaverse, uh, the vision of the metaverse is going to be realized, but not by Facebook, but by Apple. I would argue that the the closest thing we have to a metaverse right now is the app store, where it takes you to these incredible virtual environments where you can see a car coming to get you on uh, with the Uber app. You can, I can see my portfolio on the Goldman app uh, all off my phone, and it takes me it takes me into these different, if you will, meta metaverses. And most of the most of my investing insight comes from uh, Disney Plus, and I love Loki. I watch with my kid, and the key to getting to a different universe is a portal. You have to have a seamless portable that says, "We want out of this universe into another one." Yeah. And Zuckerberg is betting on the Oculus, which sold three and a half million units. Forty to seventy percent of people who've worn this report feeling some sort of nausea, and I find it comforting that I think this this sociopath who cannot be voted out of office is gonna fail. I just think that it's dead on arrival. I don't think anyone's gonna whip out whip out an Oculus to talk to their, I was, I was interviewing the Nikkei at the Crosby Bar, and I said, he said, I'd love my editor to hear this. And the idea that we were gonna whip out Oculuses and talk to his editor is so ridiculous, but he pulled out this and FaceTimed him. And so you have a central server, and we both had these on. These sold 115 million units next year. So this is the portal. This is the central server. 
Such an interesting perspective. That full interview airs, by the way, tomorrow, Thursday, Thanksgiving here in the U.S., but what a great opportunity to take a break from the table and maybe some family members uh, who are getting on your nerves and go ahead and have a listen to it. Um, I, I, I can't wait to listen to the whole thing. It's available on all tiers, Essential Plus and Pro. I mean, two really original thinkers going at it, which is just fantastic. But, you know, um, we've, we've been getting a lot of questions, Darius, about mega cap tech, right? Because we've, we've sort of seen uh, the leadership it, it, for a while, they step back, and, and now it looks like they're back, but it's bifurcating a little bit. And we're seeing um, some of the names that have been such big movers struggle a little bit and become a little bit more volatile, um, where others are just like moving ahead again, Apple being one of them, Meta being one of them. W what is your take? What are we expecting from that space? Is that going to provide market leadership in a way that we're not necessarily seeing from small caps? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do believe it is. I mean, you know, so a couple things are uh, are going to happen when you progress into next year. One, the earnings discussion will start to become more normalized as opposed to reopening and you know, the, you know, the, all these right. sort of pandemic uh, sort of impacted sectors. The reality is, is sort of this this as I mentioned earlier, this this fiscal this baton from fiscal stimulus to the services consumption in our in our economy and our society really um, is one that is not. It, there's a jury still out on that. And I think there's a real expectation that that it's a clean handoff, and therefore you should go bid up the evaluations of you know sort of more pandemic-induced sectors and things of that nature. But the reality is the market is starting to vote no on that. And I would agree with the market. We do agree with the market. We've actually made quite a few pivots in our portfolio construction in the past few weeks um, to 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 acknowledge that that pivot the market is starting to make in the context of supporting things like mega cap tech, uh, supporting things like secular growth, uh, because we do believe bond yields have peaked. Um, for this cycle, or at least for this you know part of the cycle, and ultimately that 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 disinflation that we see that we have projected, the slowdown in growth that we have projected is likely to favor again mega caps relative to small caps, low beta stocks relative to high beta stocks, growth stocks relative to value stocks, quality stocks relative to high variance stocks, you know high high dividend or high um, high sort of um, you know high earnings volatility type stocks, high cash flow volatility stocks, and all those things are the types of things you would invest in. If the economy was actually continuing to improve, and in our in our market regime now casting framework, the market has already actually moved away from pricing in reflation to now mm -hmm. pricing in something that's more kind of stagflation. Wow, no, nobody. Which is a word I know we don't like to say because that's not a great scenario. So that I, I think answers Nicholas's well, question from Sweden: Do we move to defensive and buy oil dips in a small yes. economy? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly what we've been doing at the margin. Um, in terms of the specific exposures we've allocated to in our 42 macro portfolio construction, that 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 is exactly what we're doing. And so, you know, I made this uh, comment um, in the Tony Greer interview that that just released uh, today on Revision, which is, you want to start to get defensive. You want to start to high grade your exposures um, in the fixed income market. That means moving away from high yield credit to something more of a, a high investment grade credit up to curve and in the, the treasury debt. Um, you definitely in, in the equity market again. It's all those pivots I made. From a style factor leadership perspective, I do again. I think this is more focused on style factors than it is on sectors, which is why I've been focusing on on those in, in particular. But the reality is, it, it's you don't want to head for the hills yet, because again, mm -hmm. the Fed is still going to buy 105 billion dollars of bonds this month. They're going to buy 90 billion dollars of the bonds next month, or 85 or 80. It's going to be a lot. You know, they're still doing very aggressive quantitative easing. It's just mm -hmm. that they're now starting to do it at a very aggressive quantitative easing, one, slightly at a slightly less aggressive pace. But more importantly, the economic outlook, again, as we every day we get closer to 2022, 
we have to stop talking about how awesome things are in Q4 and what the world looks like over the next year or so. And so yeah, to me, yeah. I think that's what the that's what the stock market's starting to look at. You're starting to see a breakdown in high yield credit, credit uh, yields, yields on credit that have broken out to six, nine month highs, op, uh, option adjusted spreads on high yield credit broken out to six, nine months highs. And this is kind of the process that we're talking about. The market is starting to say, hey, that liquidity that we've been getting both from the Fed and the Treasury Department in terms of its uh, Treasury General account uh, drawdown that we've seen this year, that's somewhere around $2.6 trillion of uh, year to date. Yeah, that liquidity, the the space, the 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 pace of the liquidity provision is really going to start to slow in the coming months. And though you, what happens when liquidity starts to dry up is that it always dries up at the fringes first, dries up deep in triple C credit, and then it hits you know the triple B credit, and then it starts to come affect IG. And I think we're kind of early in that process. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this: for the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to five percent to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get two hundred and fifty dollars when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com/easy. Ramp.com/easy. R-A-M-P.com/easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. But it's something we need to watch. A question from Oliver uh, related to all of this uh, on the exchange. How is BTC, how is Bitcoin going to Lambo when, from what I know, crypto digital assets like printing, stimulus, inflation, weak dollar, etc. With deflation possibly heading our way, less printing and a strong dollar from now seems like we are going the wrong way. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. Um, deflation is not here yet. Um, the highest probability macro regime for the next three months is still inflation or stagflation, as most many of your viewers would call it. So, stagflation crypto is very much worse than stagflation. So, I'm not concerned about crypto yet. I will be concerned about crypto the the further you know once we get to mid to late Q1, you're going to really start to come up as the as the as the, the, the question asker said, we're going to get to an economic regime both from a from a from a grid regime framework standpoint, but also from a policy provisioning standpoint. That is very unfavorable for crypto and really, quite frankly, unfavorable for risk assets in general. Um, so if you're talking about when do you start to think about booking gains in crypto, I think the further, you know, once you're in the midpoint of Q1 and we, we're still making highs, I think that'll be a phenomenal place to book gains. But obviously, markets don't care about my forecast. They don't care about your forecast. They don't care about anybody's forecast. They're going to yeah, do what yeah. they do. And what we're trying to do is use math and probability to estimate what the markets are going to do. But if they do something a little bit different, or if they, you know, your forecasts are wrong and you, you need to adjust your forecast on a really consistent basis, go read super forecasting if you have not done that already. You, the, the, the goal of this process, the goal of this whole exercise is to give yourself a, a sort of, you know, sort of Bayesian prior of what should happen. And if it doesn't happen, you know how to adjust. The problem yes, is yeah. a lot of investors don't ever adjust their, their Bayesian prior. Yeah, and you're going to have to watch, right? When we enter a new period, it's not going to be a straight line up. So you're going to you're going to have to be watching this, which is why we have so many, by the way, fit, fabulous technical analysts on um, every day, sort of walking you through that process. Because emotionally, you may think something, but if you're watching the price action, you are going to, as you say, have to adjust. Uh, Nicholas uh, asking, bought 
Bitcoin and ETH on, with two hands on the dip. <laughs> I like I like that. Uh, what what's our duration for the rip pre deflation? Yeah, I mean, again, I I, I think again our, our Bayesian prior is that the bull market will continue, but in a consolidating fashion through kind of the middle part of Q1 of, of next year. Um, mm-hmm. Could have could peak sooner. To peak later. I think that the reality is we, we don't know the answer to that. We're never going to know the answer to that ex ante, but all we can do is start to make decisions based on incremental confirmation in our process. Again, this is why we do the same thing every day. I update the exact same models every day, every week, every month. I update the exact same charts in our slide deck every day, every week, every month. I'm terrible at creating narratives. I'm terrible at creating theses, but I'm really good at understanding when something changes in the market that becomes investable and taking advantage of those situations. And that's what we're trying to do for investors at 42 Macro. Mm. We also have a, uh, a question to bring it back. Uh, where does the DXY, I think you meant to say, end up by year's end? You know, actually, that, that's a great point. Uh, um, I'd have to get back to the, the viewer on the upper boundary of the probable range because I don't look at the DXY specifically on a regular basis. I look at the Bloomberg dollar index. It's a much more thoughtfully constructed basket. It's based on on, 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 on our currency flows as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of this static, you know, prehistoric uh, basket <laughs> relative to, uh, the, relative to uh, the, what am I blanking on? 1971. What's my uh, next? Oh, uh, Bretton Woods. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. There go, relative to that standard. So um, anyway, we were close to the upper boundary of the Bloomberg dollar index probable range, very much likely trades very similar to the DXY. So I would imagine you could see some dollar weakness over the next few weeks. And to me, I think if we do see some dollar weakness over the next few weeks, that could catalyze a real kind of you know bull run into December. We're all going to be high fiving each other, talking about Santa Claus. Underperforming funds are going to be you know trying to take on more risk. And yeah, well, there's always that seasonal factor, right? We can't yeah. ignore that either. Totally. Look, I, I, my, if you put a gun to my head, I, I tend to lean in the camp of permable um, because I, I understand a lot of this, you know when you back test everything as, as carefully as we've done not just with respect to what's happening in the economy, but also with respect to the changes, the speed of the changes in the economy, the magnitude of the change, the speed of the change in policy, fiscal, monetary. I mean, we back-tested everything that ticks as religiously as possible, you know, volatility, covariance, annualized returns, percent positive ratios, you name it. If there's a descriptive statistic, we understand it with the context of very, you know, every major asset class and the, the sub-asset classes in between them. And the reality is most of those things tend to be positive for the stock market. Most of those things tend to be positive for things like Bitcoin. Obviously, it's a small sample size. But so the reality is you have to understand when those when we go from a situation that's generally positive to a situation that's generally negative, and it's not necessarily having to make that call at the broad index level. You know, mm-hmm. we, as I mentioned earlier, very bullish, but I wouldn't touch a, a small cap, a high beta, or, or a value stock with a 10-foot pole relative to a mega cap uh, or a low beta or a growth stock. To me, it's about what are you bullish or bearish on and in, in addition to being bullish or bearish from a broader sort of risk-taking standpoint. I think that's great advice, Darius. And, and again, something I think we're really going to be you know, needing to think about as we turn the corner, because you know, there was a period this year where everything was moving in one direction. You, know, you, 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 you could kind of take your eye off the ball, but it's going to get a little bit harder to navigate, it seems. Um, Darius, that, that was like the data dump uh, from the government. That was a whole lot of information we gave people <laughs> to work with as they sort of take the break and take a look and try to figure out how they're going to navigate into the end of the year. Thank you so much, as usual. And I know you're going to have a lot of good food to eat and hope you have a fantastic holiday season. Yes, thank you, Maggie. And happy Thanksgiving to all of our viewers. It's a Lyman's holiday. This is a Lyman's Christmas, so I mean, I'm, I'm certainly going to enjoy myself. Uh, might be a little chubby next time you guys see me. 
Yeah, same. I know. I think we all are. Food coma is in store for sure, um, but also yeah. hopefully some some great time and hopefully getting together and gathering with some family and friends in person for those of you who missed out on that. So um, thanks so much, Darius. Enjoy. And we will see you again soon. And to all of you, have a wonderful holiday. If you are celebrating here in the U.S., the Daily Briefing will be off for the Thanksgiving holiday, giving everyone a much needed break, barring, I should say, any huge market event. If that one does happen, we will be here for you. Otherwise, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, but remember, we have that uh, Scott Galloway interview with Raul, which is going to be fantastic, dropping tomorrow, as well as a host of other videos um, that will be coming out. And of course, the conversation always continues on the exchange. So enjoy, take care, and good luck out there. Really exciting news is we're taking over Las Vegas on December the 9th to the 11th. We're joining forces with MGM themselves at the world famous MGM Grand using their venues around Las Vegas itself. Some of the best venues in the whole of the city, iconic places to hold these incredible events. It's going to be all about the biggest revolution since the internet, blockchain. So join us at the takeover in Las Vegas. I'm going personally. It's the first event I've been to in 21 months. Realvision.com forward slash the takeover. There's some tickets left or there's a possibility to participate in the online version, the virtual event as well. I'm going to kick it all off with an interview with one of my favorite people in the world, one of the best thinkers, the unique talent, Bill Tye. So join us in Las Vegas for the takeover. There we go. King of the one takes.